describes himself as a democracy enthusiast, and I'm a democracy enthusiast. I think democracy's great. I think without democracy, people like me never get to go to university. Um, that without democracy, there is no, there's no safety. There's conscription. There are these, you know, Russian kids who are currently on a front line in an imperialist war. You know, that's that's the cost. And democracy requires not only internal vigilance, but the point is participation, and the point is to do as much as you can. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. This week's episode is something a little different. In front of a live audience at the Australian National University, I speak with playwright, author and activist Van Badham about her new book, QAnon Anon, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Well, thank you very much, Colin. As you did, let me acknowledge we're meeting tonight on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people. Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwari, Daurawari, Dindi, Wangaradin, Jinyin. And I want to acknowledge any Indigenous people present tonight. Uh, there is a conspiracy to educate the Canberra public in new books, and Colin Steele <laughs> is at the heart of that conspiracy. Uh, he is the Q of the conspiracy, uh, and we are much the better for it. So, Colin, thank you for all that you do uh, with new books. And it's an absolute treat to be here with Van Badham, uh, playwright, political campaigner and author, uh, to talk about QAnon and on. Uh, Van, I want to start with the broad issue of conspiracy theories. Why are humans drawn to conspiracy theories? Well, Andrew, just before I start, I want to acknowledge that I'm on Narwhal land. Um, I live on the land of the Wadarong people, and forgive me if I'm a bit, wow, there are people in this room, because I haven't left the land of the Wadarong people in a couple of years. Um, so it's, it's amazing to see so many faces that aren't looking bored on a Zoom. Um, <laughs> so the appeal of conspiracy theories, there are numerous appeals of them. In my research looking specifically at QAnon and the sort of octopus of movements around QAnon that I encountered on the internet, the particular theory about the appeal of conspiracy theories that I saw lived out in the, the internet behaviour of these people I was monitoring and getting to know was certainly a combination of two things. One, it was an indication of distress, and this is something that psychologists have identified in their study of conspiratorial belief, that when people feel that their environment is unstable, when they feel that their position in the world is unclear, they seize on conspiracy theories uh, because of a, a, psychological, um, a psychological response which psychologists call either splitting or the paranoid schizoid position. So one of the psychologists I interviewed for my book explained this need for people who are overwhelmed by information and feeling unstable to have simple binaries to sort information, that essentially <coughs> conspiratorial belief comes from information overload, 
where people are seeking very simple answers to complex problems and polarisations so they can easily pick a side, good, bad, light, dark, heroes, villains, um, patriots and the cabal in QAnon law. One of the other appeals of conspiratorial thinking, which is particularly relevant to the QAnon movement and the, the movements around it, is that conspiratorial thinking gives people an ego boost. It is this notion of having knowledge which is secret and special mm. that gives people an enhanced sense of status, as if they possess something that other people don't or can't have. And it ties into all kinds of psychological projections around an insecurity of intelligence. And when you look, as I unfortunately have, at rather a lot of social media material produced by these people, and I talk about it in the book, you see this really obvious pattern of resentment towards intellectual elites um, and this sort of anti-expert sentiment that's been encouraged by populists in the broader political discussion, particularly in England. So I lived in England for 10 years and have sort of monitored the, the Brexit movement as it really took off and uh, the statements of the Brexiteers and people like Farage and Johnson. And there was this incredible statement um, that one of the Brexiteers came up with was people are sick of experts. And that there was this you know, encouraged belief that uh, experts are wrong, what would elites know, common sense is that common. And, and you can see that theme in the conspiratorial movements. So that's really a, a combination of the appeals. It's a status game, but it's also a way of settling psychological tension. You talk in the book about a number of the pathways that people have into conspiracy theories. Um, the sort of Facebook algorithm is, is one that I think is, is others have spoken about. But two, two gateways that surprised me were a sudden loss. You spoke about QAnon adherents that had lost a lawsuit or they'd gone through a d d messy divorce. Uh, and then you also have talked about the pathway the, the, through the wellness woo movement uh, and the way in which uh, some people come to conspiracy theories via uh, the, uh, the, the sort of Gwyneth Paltrow kind of approach to health. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Oh, yeah. So um, QAnon and that sort of swell, I'll just say QAnon, but I mean the sovereign citizen movement. Mm. They're all sort of cross-pollinating at the moment, as I'm sure everybody in Canberra knows all too well. Um, yeah, so in the United States, of course, you have a particular community of people who are quite vulnerable to these ideas because they've been raised in quite a polarised political environment. Uh, there's a lot of language associated with these movements that's associated with particular strains of evangelical Protest Protestantism, not all of them, but some of them. And certainly QAnon language like the Great Awakening. Like Great Awakenings are historical events in Protestant congregations in the United States. That happen in every you know, few decades or so. And, um, and there's certainly an appeal uh, of the language, the movement, various tribal markers and identities that play into things like alignment to Trump, obviously, and the Trumpers' cause, and you know, a sort of really, um, a really committed American Republican Party libertarianism. And those people, because they're primed in the language and the sort of ideas that, you know, Democrats are evil and out to get us and, uh, you know, progressive social change is something to be resisted at all costs. But in Australia, that's not how QAnon got in. In Australia, it got in through the wellness community, through a phenomenon that sociologists have called 
fusion paranoia, which is just amazing. And fusion paranoia is when seemingly unlike groups, and you can see it with some of the discussion around Russia and the invasion of Ukraine at the moment, fusion paranoia is when supposedly unlike groups find a common cause and all of a sudden what began as sort of a polarity of belief merges into like a unifying theory of, of paranoia. And in Australia and particularly in Germany as well, like which was how QAnon got into Germany where it's been lethal, unfortunately, it got in through this, uh, through an anti-vax community that pre-existed the pandemic um, that was based in sort of a resistance towards Western medicine and pharmacology, people seeking out, again, uh, secret knowledge, special sort of elevated status from having a greater insight about health than, you know, doctors. Um, and that was the pathway into these ideas that tying into a lot of old American tropes of conspiracies around big pharma and a resentment towards uh, the global drug industry and various exploitations that have gone on there. It's it's sort of difficult. I did an interview with an American podcast the other day going, and they were like, oh, is, you know, healthcare really prohibitive in Australia? And I was like, we have universal healthcare. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The resentment towards big pharma when you have a pharmaceutical benefit scheme. And this American was just like, I really don't understand what they're complaining about. I'm like... Yep, most of us on the same page. But that fusion has seen this cross-pollination of beliefs. And a lot of the people who I interviewed in the book were people who'd had these Australian experiences with QAnon through various wellness channels. In fact, one of the immediate provocations for writing the book was a friend of mine, and I talk about her in the book, a woman who's known as Michelle, who, whose yoga guru, like yoga teacher, had gone through a messy divorce and was really unsettled by it. And through these various communities and the way that the algorithms promote connections between these ideas and these paranoias, he went and she quoted it as full QAnon and it was Hillary Clinton abducting children and the lizard people and the whole thing. And she rang me in just absolute distress like not knowing what to do. She knew I had written about this kind of stuff before. And I made inquiries of other friends of mine who are like practitioners of Ch traditional Chinese medicine and various yoga people and sort of other people who are on my radar. And they were like, it is everywhere. And it is really polarizing that sort of wellness community and people who you know, just want to be a bit more limber are getting these lectures about Hillary Clinton and doing Zoom stretches and, and it is really terrifying, especially when you consider various alternative communities in Australia that have gone from a bit woo to absolutely full-on anti-vax communities and prepared to engage in you know, the, the propaganda that's associated with that very American libertarian, um, destroy the government, people's revolution kind of stuff. It's, it's really frightening. And the algorithms are to blame. Like, um, another person who I speak to in the book, Cam Smith, who's fantastic, who's an extremist monitor, monitor from Melbourne, he talked about watching yoga mums essentially become, you know, radicalised using the language he would have associated with jihadists as they sort of went from, I've got a few questions about Western medicine to, we must destroy the deep state, they're, you know, doing, they're mutilating our children, we must rise up, I'll meet you at a pub in Oakley and let's get organised kind of thing. And, and that's really what is so disturbing, is that once you start down the rabbit hole, it is very easy to get 
sucked into a, a propaganda channel that becomes a sealed information environment, sometimes within a matter of hours. So unless it uh, hasn't become apparent, uh, Van is very comfortable with social media, so you should feel free to uh, tweet or Facebook uh, our event. And uh, it's also being live-streamed on uh, my Facebook page, Andrew Lee MP, uh, if you want to uh, mention it to friends who might be interested. Uh, Van, uh, one of the tensions I find in thinking about these movements is, is there's moments where you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Uh, you know, you, the, the ludicrousness of the Pizzagate conspiracy for me began by the fact that the place didn't even have a basement at no. all, uh, let alone a basement that was uh, hiding child abuse. Um, this notion that Donald Trump was actually playing three-dimensional chess while others were playing two-dimensional chess. The idea that Julie Bishop wore red shoes because they're the kind of shoes that child murderers wear because the blood doesn't show. You know, this, this kind of stuff is just barking mad. But then you've got some, some really nasty real-world stuff, the, the persecution of people directly in real life. We've got Ginger Gorman here who's experienced that uh, uh, directly. You yourself has have. Um, the, um, the Christchurch shootings, of, of course, uh, and, uh, and a range of the, uh, the hate that's been directed to uh, you know, people for doing something as straightforward as starring in a Ghostbusters remake. Um, so, how do we think about this? To what extent should we be rolling our eyes and to what extent should we be really worried about these movements? Oh, we should be terrified. And, and I mean, my experience on uh, undercover in this group. So, when I started to write the book, I hadn't seen this stuff for years. And I, because I do live on the internet, I was particularly attuned to its its emergence, so I'm used to. I mean, I I mean I've had a big week, Andrew. I mean this. I there's I usually have a particular group of people who attack me on the internet, um, and you know it's usually neo Nazis, neo fascists, um, somebody who really liked me until I had a political opinion they didn't like that one time, in which case I have betrayed everyone. Um, I had uh, transgender exclusive radical feminists this week. Sometimes it's vegans. Sorry, vegans. I don't. I, I, I eat the good vegan burgers and the whole thing. It depends. But once it was uh, bonobo fancier, fanciers. I had made some kind of glib post on Twitter about um, you know the the cabinet of Scott Morrison behaving like crack out of bonobos, and I got this line which was like, "That's really disrespectful of bonobos. They're <laughs> highly sophisticated animal." And I was like, okay, cocaine adult bonobos, ha ha ha. And they were like, how dare you? And it just escalated from me making funny political joke, or maybe even not that funny, and I take full responsibility for that, to literally within four days I had death threats from like the Bonobo Association of North America. <laughs> so I feel myself as a bit of a litmus of, of various groups and, um, and their more violent impulses. And uh, apparently this, oh, I won't even go into it, but I started, because I get death threats and I have um, unfortunately been targeted by various individuals in acts of opportunistic violence um, that drove me out of my home. I had parcels delivered and I was attacked in the street. Numerous terrible things have happened to me. Obviously I have to take my security very seriously and I keep files on whoever basically I think is might have some kind of like obsessive issue. I keep files on the people who attack me online. 
Hi, anyone watching? Um, and I started seeing this very early on, this kind of weird apocalyptic language from the kind of people who were like, you will pay, you will swing, uh, the day of the rope is coming from you, you will face judgment kind of thing. And I was like, what is this? And soon sort of was keeping files on this stuff and saw the American journalism that started to appear around this QAnon um, particular mythos and started following it. And of course, it's completely bonkers. Like it is absolutely beyond bonkers. Um, just so you know, uh, the various groups that have infiltrated some of the things that have been going around the groups that I'm in uh, about the, the protests in Canberra, there was an absolute, there was a classic of the genre the other day and it's, apparently there was a streaker outside Parliament House and they were like, he was a plant, he was a plant, this streaker, he'd been part of their demonstration and then was arrested. And the issue was they had taken him into Parliament House. So clearly he was onto it, like he was part of the deep state for some reason, because why would they be taking him to Parliament House? And I was like, clearly to put some clothes on him <laughs> and probably to put him in the cells that are underneath Parliament House for this precise reason. And, but they were saying, the analysis was that he had to be an agent of the deep state because the police were so paranoid they had deployed robot dogs in Canberra. <laughs> Guys, did you know? They're all robots and the police are behind them and somehow the streaker is involved. And it was just the kind of thing that you would, you would, be, you would be politely surprised to see somebody on a fairly intense acid trip saying these kind of things. <laughs> but they were absolutely investing in it and supplying evidence. And it becomes like this group delusion where people are like, yeah, and I saw this other thing. And it becomes like a, a group-generated belief system that they all, because they all contribute, it becomes like this orthodoxy that definitely the streaker was from the deep state and the rest of it. And the reason why it's so problematic is that you now have a population of people, and I put this in the context of my own experience, as somebody who has been attacked and has had these things happen to me in real life based on a persona that other people have created for me as a folk villain on the internet. Like, I'm five foot two, I dress like a librarian, like I lead a very quiet life. Um, and yet- Not that there's anything wrong with librarians, Colin. Yeah, but this is, this is the thing, like you, you genuinely don't expect to get death threats in my, like I'm, I did a theatre degree, like this is not, before I was on the internet, like the idea that I would be, you know, at the centre of anybody's conspiracy was crazy. And but when it becomes that group project, when they all invest in it, and it becomes almost a, it's not just a statement of group belief. It becomes like an act of loyalty to something that's been shared with the group to take those positions to the next level. When I was attacked in Melbourne and I went to the police, and I wasn't badly hurt, but I was incredibly shaken up because it happened in Burke Street in the middle of the day. And the police described it as opportunistic violence. And they said that the guy who attacked me had probably just recognised me from the internet and seen an opportunity and was like, I'm going to get up and, and leapt and got me. Um, if you extend that to a political realm where you have that kind of conviction and that kind of sense of righteousness around acts of violence, you are looking at a population of people who can be mobilised and deployed by various bad faith political actors to do anything. Because the problem is that if you can, can literally 
convince someone that there are robot dogs operated by the police in Canberra or the Moderna bees or the Moderna wasps, as I'm sure you all know about. They were getting wasp stings and they were convinced it was the police filling little tiny needles full of Moderna and deploying them. Like, this is what was going on. Like, and it's so funny because you just think, yes, there is no basement in the pizza restaurant, but they believe it because they want to believe it and they can justify anything to themselves because if the, the moment that you accept that the internet has become your reality, changing that reality and pushing that reality and directing it means real world violence. And we've seen that around the world. And I think you and Canberra were very, very lucky and some very sophisticated policing probably went into minimising the amount of damage they could cause as confronting as it was for all of you who were living through it. So how have these experiences changed the way in which you engage? Because, you know, many people would take the approach of deleting their social media accounts and uh, stepping right back. You've, you've stepped right into it. Um, how, have you, how, have you, how have you managed that sort of both emotionally and, and how do you think about it, you know, practi practically? Uh, what is the work of fighting fascists to you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I have been a very proud anti-fascist activist for a very long time. Um, my uh, anti-fascist crusade began as a teenager when my high school in a really multicultural part of Sydney was attacked by National Action, who were part of the old, the old right, the old fascist right. Um, there were a handful of them in, in Sydney and they attacked my school and it, it said something about the moment that I was living through in the community I lived in that we didn't actually understand the meaning of the racist terms that had been put up around the school. We were saying to the teachers, but what does that even mean? Like, what is that? Um, and, you know, I had such a profound sense of offence at that that when I got to university, I became involved in anti-racism campaigns and anti-fascist campaigns. And I mean, fascists are the lowest form of human life. They're the lowest form of life. I think that's kind of obvious. And, you know, left to pursue their desires, they kill millions of people. So vigilance has to be eternal. Um, I can do what I do because I don't have children, I think is a massive, that's a, that does enable me to sort of you know, be a wild-eyed learner at the gates of oblivion, and um, I don't have, I don't have that um, vulnerability that other people have in that particular space. Um, that being said, after, so I got a parcel of material depicting gang rapes and circumcisions delivered to my flat in Melbourne at the time that I had taken a stalker who was associated with the far right. Uh, to court, I got an intervention order which he appealed and I ended up doing seven court appearances in a year to get him to leave me alone. And he had organised people to follow me home from work and they live tweeted what I was doing in my apartment on a Monday night because they camped out on the multi-storey car park. I believe that's what they did. I mean, physically, I don't know how, unless they had a satellite, which would be unusual. Um, it, it was terrifying. It was a terrifying time of my life. Um, when when I got hurt, my partner was like, that's it, we're leaving Melbourne, and we moved to a secure location, which I don't disclose. And I do have to take all these bizarre precautions around my security just because I don't know what will happen. Um, and usually everything's fine, but... And I, I obviously I'm not a particularly physically intimidating or threatening person, 
but it's the language of threat is really interesting and it's great to have Ginger Gorman here whose book Troll Hunting is fantastic and which everybody should read and I'm in it um, and when Ginger was putting that book together and I was talking about my experiences you know just you know doing Q&A and then a thousand people try to threaten to kill you in an hour and things like that um, it did really have a terrible effect on me for a very long time and my partner sort of unlocked it because I went to I went to art school my partner was like, so at art school do you learn to take criticism? And I was like, oh my God, that's the whole point of art school because they can't really teach you about art because it's either in you or not, but they teach you how to take criticism. And he was like, right, the people on the internet, they don't want to make you a better artist, they want you to die. And that sort of unlocked for me that maybe I shouldn't take it all on board. Um, but also, it, like, I, I just got to a place where it was like, this is what it is, this is a day at work, this is a day ending in Y, and that's the joke in the house. I'm, like, my partner would be like, so, how was today? And I'd be like, oh, well, I was told I betrayed the working class and that, you know, I'm um, a puppet of communism. Communist dyke Jew whore was... Um, I'm only one of those things, but it describes my entire Venovel lap of friends, so I'm on board. Um, and, you know, these various other things that happened, and it's just... That's just what it is. You know, like, I have to get up in the morning and... If I believe these things that I'm committed to, I have to keep prosecuting that argument. And if the price of that is, you know, a bunch of neo-fascists threatening to kill me, I mean, that's the price. But, I mean, what's the alternative? Your... Yes. There's a sort of a tension that runs between the book, between denouncing uh, those who believe in conspiracy theories, and you've talked about fascists as the lowest form of life, and then wanting to understand and to bring back people from, uh, from down the rabbit hole. Uh, who do you think can be brought back, and what do, you, what, what, what do you believe are the most effective strategies of doing that? Uh, I think it was very interesting in the pandemic, and particularly living through the pandemic in Victoria, because people really did people were under incredible amounts of psychological pressure. And it, it was, I mean, a hell of a thing to live through. Even if you were really psychologically well, even if you had, you know, various structures of security and support, um, it was a really tenuous time. And for people, particularly people who were in insecure work, um, whose working lives and incomes were upset by what was going on, even with JobKeeper, even with the very generous support provided by the Victorian state government, and, and the Victorian state government really were in, incredible because, I mean, nobody could get away from what was happening in Victoria. It didn't matter who you were. Um, it, was a, it was a frightening and, and strange time. There were people who, because they were in environmental distress um, and, you know, and had a status interruption of losing work, finding themselves in a Centrelink queue for the first time, um, people in that situation were vulnerable to conspiracy, conspiratorial entity on the internet. And people who I wouldn't associate with any kind of sort of libertarian or neo-fascist like ideological proclivity were being sucked into those kind of beliefs because they were simple and they were good guys, bad guys. Um, and obviously when I was writing the book and started putting stuff on social media saying, has anybody had an encounter with these believers? I had I got like 600 responses in a day, which was really frightening. But one of the really interesting things um, that I learned in the course of researching the book was the people who become the really hardcore believers as opposed to sort of the day travellers. 
um, are people, like you mentioned before, who've had a status upset. And the most extraordinary thing was that with, as with Trump voters, there's been this big misconception that I actually think is, is incredibly classist. This idea that believers in conspiracy theories and, and Trump voters are, the, um, are these sort of poor, intellectually denuded working class people who've been displaced by globalisation and have economic resentment. And this has been a very popular thesis on the left. And, um, and it's entirely, it's just, it's just classist prejudice because that's not who Trump voters are and it's not who QAnon believers are. Overwhelmingly, these people are middle class. They're small business owners. Um, they're people who have had uh, positions of status in the community and had that threatened in various ways. Like you said, like a bankruptcy or a divorce or an adverse legal finding or a child custody battle, but something that has changed their image of their own superiority. And in the United States, this is particularly based around white communities, obviously, but they're not poor and they're not the oppressed working class. The oppressed working class in the United States is very black and very brown. And that's not who these people are. Um, and there's a, there's a sort of cosplay element, particularly in the United States around the sort of Trumpers, where you have people who own car dealerships, who dress up as if they're blue collar workers, you know, trying to connect to this image of American work, hard work and authenticity. Revealingly in Canada, in the trucker protest, the overwhelming majority of people participating in that were not truckers. Like there are trucking, none of the trucking unions in Canada back that action. Um, they're like 70, no, it was more than that, 90% of truckers in Canada were vaccinated and didn't support those protests at all. But it is that cosplay element of like playing to the, to, you know, these sort of earthy, you know, or like, uh, you know, every, every man sort of, or, or, or like ordinary, you know, hardworking, blue collar, I'm constantly reminded of Sean Hannity, who's the reprehensible Fox News host, who described Donald Trump as a blue-collar billionaire, <laughs> which is Marxists in the audience. Let's all just sit with that one for a moment. <laughs> um, and and that and that element of it is really is really fascinating because again, in the Australian context as well, if when you sort of track the track the cookers and their work you genuinely find a lot of complaints around their small business performance and how lockdowns affected their, their business. And the arrests on January 6, obviously the Venn overlap with this community is quite strong. You had these people who were like the less successful sons of successful businessmen and you had, and I'm using gendered language specifically in this context, and you had people who flew down to the demonstrations in private planes. You know, Joanne Reid, who's an MSNBC host, made the point that, you know, working class Americans don't have the money to stay in the Hilton in Washington for the weekend they decide to overthrow the government. And again and again, you see this particular pattern of status anxiety that plays out in this particular middle class community that's quite defensive, protective, trying to hold on to an unearned sense of social superiority. And in terms of in terms of can we bring those people back from the rabbit hole, it's like, well, there's a rather solid investment in perpetuating an unequal and hierarchical status quo that I think those people maybe don't want to let go of. 
Yes, your analysis of who supports QAnon did remind me of there's some nice political science research looking at the last democratic elections before Hitler's rise to power and where the Nazi party vote came from and overwhelmingly it finds this sort of small business uh, component there. Uh, but I want to get your sense as to how permanent that is. Uh, there's a book by Karen Stenner called The Authoritarian Dynamic which argues that a third of the population is pretty strongly committed to authoritarian ideas, hostile to cosmopolitanism and therefore uh, amenable to being tapped into by any would-be would -be authoritarian. And she argues this is pretty stable across uh, a range of different countries uh, and therefore that, that that group is always going to be vulnerable to supporting authoritarians or conspiracy theories. So are you that pessimistic? Uh, I think at the moment I am. I think looking at the total capture of the GOP in the United States by these hard right positions is a really terrifying thing to run through. Um, Bill Crystal follows me on Twitter now. And Bill Crystal, of course, was one of the leading neocon intellectuals of the Reagan revolution, you know, deeply invested in the kind of you know, American neoliberal centre right I have fought my entire adult life. And suddenly we're on the same side because we both hate authoritarianism. And he did an extraordinary um, fundraiser for Joe Biden with Billy Crystal, which is the, just one of the weirdest political moments I think <laughs> I will ever live through. And again, you see people like um, Rick Wilson, who was the, the ad guy and campaign mind behind Rudy Giuliani for New York. and all these guys who were involved in promoting um, the Sarah Palin campaigns and things like that, who are now these sort of feral anti-Trumpers, and I find them really politically interesting because their politics have not shifted an inch since the Cold War, but they are deeply invested in opposing the Republican Party in the United States, the party that fed them and served them and made a lot of them rich and powerful because it has been absolutely captured by this kind of mad right-wing populism that uses QAnon and these other sort of um, conspiratorial communities as like shock troops, essentially. Um, Lauren Boebert, who's the congressional representative from Colorado, who I talk a bit about in the book, who's very QAnon friendly, she was giving a speech in the past 24 hours. I mean, there is a war of aggression in Ukraine being led by the Russians and she was telling her followers that the real enemy is Canada because Canada had imposed mask mandates and, and vaccine requirements and is literally calling for Americans to take up arms against Canada. Candace Owens is another one who was talking about how Australia is a totalitarian state. Did you guys know? Um, we're a totalitarian state now and that you know, democracy, Australia, hashtag Australia has fallen. I mean, these used to be the most, you know, absolutely loon-wand kind of positions, and they're now desperately influential in the other major party alternative in the United States of America. And that's why, you know, these old Cold War warriors are campaigning, fundraising with Billy Crystal for Joe Biden and the Democrats. It is, it is really, really frightening. Now, we have a check on that in Australia because in that moment of pure wisdom, we legislated um, universal enfranchisement, also known as compulsory voting. It means in Australia you cannot polarise 
politically. You can't abandon the centre or disillusion them or just, you know, disenfranchise them from voting. But in the United States, where that has happened and in other countries that have, um, that have voluntary voting, those wedges have been driven and grow wider and wider where you have a political party totally taken over by very extreme positions. I mean, there are, so with congressional elections coming up in the United States of America, there are people with absolute outright QAnon beliefs prosecuting those beliefs to their community, to the Republican pre-selectors in their primary system, and they will get pre-selected and a lot of them will get elected. That's terrifying. We're now going to open up for uh, questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please come down to the mic out the front. Uh, while we're uh, waiting on pe uh, people to come down and ask questions, Van, tell me about your transition from being a playwright to uh, being a, a politically engaged writer. Have you, have you always had both strands? Or um, was there yeah, something that I, drew I actually, you across? I, I actually earn the majority of my living from being a theatre maker. That's actually what what I do, um, the, the rest is sort of my side hustle. But I, I mean, I've always been a politically engaged person. Um, I grew up in a family of trade union members. I was taken to pickets when I was very young. Um, and that has always been a, a huge part of my, like when you're raised in a, in a union family, your union forever, or you have betrayed the people who loved and raised you. Um, and, uh, and I'm very proud that I've always had that connection. You know, I joined my first union when I joined when I got my first job, um, and certainly I just have a very solid sense of conviction. I've had a lot more opportunities in my life to express my politics than my parents did. So my parents were white collar working class. My dad worked in the club industry, worked in the dog club in Canberra. Um, so we lived here very briefly in the 1970s, and it's another story. Um, and my mother was a public servant, she was a stenographer. Both of them left school when they were 15. They were highly intelligent people, but didn't, I mean, they just didn't have the opportunities to complete the educations that they would have liked to. Um, and I've always been very aware of the fact that, especially when I turned around to my dad and when I got into university, I'm going to do creative arts and become an avant-garde feminist theatre maker. <laughs> it's not exactly what dad was expecting in the whole first-in-family conversation. I think he was desperately hoping I'd do like a law degree, which is frankly ridiculous. Um, I, and I'm not criticising anybody who did those, but look at me, please. And, um, and certainly with those, with the platforms that I've had access to, I have a very deep sense of responsibility that I'm constantly fighting for the values that my parents held, but didn't have the chance to platform. And I think that's really important. In fact, it, it is, like I said, you know, I've become really fascinated with the sort of anti-Trump Republicans. Like I'm really into them. Like I'm, I, find, I find them sort of a source of the, the dialectic around democracy. Um, and that sort of share, and one of them, uh, an academic from the American Naval College called Tom Nichols, um, he, who I mentioned in the book, because he describes these people as the Lumpen bourgeoisie, which I think is spot on. Um, he describes himself as a democracy enthusiast, and I'm a democracy enthusiast. I think democracy is great. I think without democracy, people like me never get to go to university. Um, that without democracy, there is no. There's no safety, there's conscription. There are these you know, Russian kids who are currently on a front line in an imperialist war. You know, that's, that's the cost. And democracy requires not only internal vigilance, but the point is participation and the point is to do as much as you can 
ideologically if you're on the the left the center left the center the center right and obviously the right the far right don't support it or believe in it it's your absolute sacred duty to fight for democracy and for democratic participation by participating in it at every opportunity that you have first question uh, thanks very much for your presentation. I too am scared by what's going on. But Facebook's attitude is that if it drives traffic to their site, who cares if the postings are crazy or not? Do you see any chance of reigning in Facebook and similar um, companies to take a more responsible social, take their social responsibility seriously? Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Can we take two questions, Dan, and then sure. uh, the intake, take them both together? That way we'll get through more of those all way in. Thanks, Van. Sorry, I'm right down here. Um, <laughs> in your um, research, did you find that both sides of politics tend to use trigger words to um, enthuse their supporters? And quite often, the words are quite similar. Now, I'm asking this because, um, according to my brother, I'm a woke lefty. Um, he's very conservative. Um, a communist and a few other things. But with the war in Ukraine, I've been reading a lot um, from people who are Putin, not necessarily Putin supporters, but not Ukraine supporters. And they use similar sort of words. So according to these people, and some of them have written quite lengthy opinion pieces in various newspapers around the world, about the fact that these are fascists and neo-Nazis who are running Ukraine and so what Putin is doing is justified. Um, and the interesting thing I found in reading these articles was it was the similar sorts of trigger words, not exactly the same, but for, that I used, for example, um, against Dan Andrews in Victoria. And these were being used, similar words were being used against um, the Prime Minister of Ukraine. So have you sort of found that those trigger words are important? Well, I'm sure it'd be, it's news to Zelensky to be described as a neo-Nazi being Jewish and having lost three grandparents in the Holocaust. Um, but obviously those words are used because they're loaded propaganda terms. The, the two questions are actually related and um, in, in terms of talking about the specific Ukraine example, uh, there has been a very concerted effort by the Russians um, under the, the leadership of Vladimir Putin to weaponise disinformation war. There's a book anybody in this, uh, who's interested in this discussion should definitely read called How to Lose the Information War, whose author Nina Yankovic is a scholar from the Wilson Centre and has become an incredibly close friend of mine. She's, I interviewed her for my book. Um, where Nina talks, she was based in the Ukraine for a long time and also studied in, like studied disinformation campaigns in Estonia and in various uh, places where the Russians have been pioneering disinformation techniques for, um, for the internet for a long time and looking at how those societies did or didn't deal with what, um, what how the Russians were disinformation campaigning. The reason why you've picked up on this notion of they use the same language and the same trigger points is that, and this is what Nina's book goes into some detail about, is the Russians will happily, black both, will happily back both sides. 
And she talked about her experience of being in Washington, where she lived, and realising that America had this problem um, of Russian disinformation campaigning when, because I mean, this is what she was studying in Eastern Europe and had seen the sort of play out before, where she had friends from her sort of other life as a, a musical theatre performer who were going down at the behest of a Facebook group that they didn't know the moderators of or know that there had been this request for everybody who was sort of anti-Trump to go down to the Capitol building um, and sing songs from Les Mis and campaign against Trump. At the same time, there was a group that had been mobilised to go down there to, to, as a pro-Trump activity. And she realised that they had been mobilised in the exact same way and that you know, various data investigations revealed that they were coming from basically from the same set of accounts, were playing off these groups on the left and on the right against one another. And that's been going on for a long time. The anti-Ukraine stuff that you're seeing, a lot of it has come from these sort of, on the left, there are, um, there are people who have become captured to Rus Russian disinformation. There are bloggers who've been popular and other influencers who've been encouraged who are on the left and supplied with all kinds of information to encourage a particular kind of um, anti, like anti-American, anti-imperialist worldview that's literally based in dot points of Russian propaganda. I mean, that's been happening. Um, there has also been, uh, obviously, this encouragement on the American right. It's fusion paranoia. You know, it's, um, it serves the interests of Russian disinformation campaigning for democracies to be divided and polarised and angry and to desert the centre because this is used by Putinistas to turn around and go, you make this democratic demand, look how miserable this society is, look at those people who walked up onto the Capitol building, look at all this division around various flashpoint issues. And it's not that, it's not that you know, a, a Russian internet agency created those points of division, they exist in democracies but we used to mediate them through the democratic process. When we mediate them through the internet, it is in the interest of bad faith actors, whether they're you know, the Russian government or Steve Bannon, to play up those divisions and to play us off against one another and to make our democracies aggressive and dysfunctional. That serves the interests of aspirational autocrats, wherever they're from. And, and this, is a, this is a huge problem. Um, there are, in terms of looking at Facebook, Facebook could shut this down tomorrow. In Germany, where there are very specific laws about what you can and cannot say in public, strangely enough, given the historical experience of that particular country, um, Facebook has no choice. If they want to do business in Germany, they have to obey those laws. And they have all the power of algorithmic control to ensure very strict moderation and stop various points of view from being platformed there. We don't have that we don't have that kind of um, control over Facebook in Australia, and we should. The Biden administration is moving on because, the, you know, they're obviously quite aware of the problem, given the whole 2016 scenario. They're very aware of the fact that there has to be an oversight about what the, uh, what the social media platforms can platform or should platform or should be able to. But it is, it is hilarious to read, and I talk about this in the book, Facebook talk about, oh, we've got new moderation and blah, blah, blah. Look, I've made personal complaints about people sharing vaccine misinformation and, you know, in the middle of a public health emergency, it's not getting 
removed from Facebook, as if that's happening, because there's no punishment, there's no law, and it's good for their bottom line. Because in the same context that if you can convince people to believe there are robot dogs being operated by the police in, in Canberra, you can convince those people to buy all kinds of lovely products that um, can be advertised on social media platforms or anywhere else. In the mainstream media, like the entire business model of the mainstream media in you know Western society is if it bleeds, it leads. People respond to advertising when they're angry and they're frightened. And Facebook knows that, you know, that the the atmosphere of anger and fear that's fostered by bad faith actors active in that space is a really good way to sell advertising. We need to wrap in uh, five minutes, so let's take two more questions and then I'll get you to answer those and then we'll wrap. Please. Um, hello, I loved your book by the way. Um, one of the things that you noted in your book was the fact that um, uh, kind of anti-feminism turned sad boys into like let's kill the government kind of bad boys. Um, is there any role in feminism for dealing with those kind of things or do you think it should be part of feminism's role to deal with those, those issues? Thank you. And our final question for that? Just a double bucket. Um, one, I've been looking at the anti-vaxxers rallies in Canberra quite closely, and my question is, uh, to what extent do you think that the conspiratorial type of thinking is spreading through those protests? And secondly, do you have a view about what impact uh, that energy and agitation that is developing is going to have in the forthcoming election? Oh, yeah, I love talking about this one. Um, here's a fun story. So during the last election, as I'm sure Andrew knows all too well, there was a rumour that the Labor Party were going to introduce a death tax. Oh, I had to stop the death tax. And um, it was untrue. It was never part of the Labor platform. Repeatedly, the Labor Party called this out and said this was not true. But I saw the death tax rumour being circulated in a very interesting way that it was always copied and pasted, so you couldn't actually track back to who had originated this death tax rumour. It always, it was always on the page of somebody you might have vaguely known, um, particularly I noticed a lot of real estate agents, because I was tracking, I'm serious, um, I was tracking this going, what is this, what is going on? And it was quite specific that if you inherited a car from your dad, you'd have to sell it. Um, in order to pay the government, to pay you know the evil Labor government that was coming forty percent of the cost, and there were some really specific statistical demands made in this rumor that was untraceable and copied and pasted and and getting enormous amounts of traction. In fact, it, the the statistics were absolutely the same as being used in campaign in the twenty sixteen United States election in various um, swing voting communities, particularly in Florida. They didn't even change the numbers. And it had been um, supported by various front groups on Facebook and looked pretty much like something that you would associate with a Steve Bannon-like campaign presence. Um, there were worse things that were circulated in the 2019 election. Um, some of you might have seen just that absolute horrific defamation of Bill Shorten and his family that went online. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. These are practiced campaigns that have been run in the United States and run in Ukraine and run in Estonia and run like all over the world. Um, the level of disinformation campaigning we saw around 
uh, the Brexit refer referendum and untraceable lies, mass-produced, pumped out by front groups and the rest of it. Somebody is obviously paying for these campaigns. There is no organic genius so singular on the Australian right that they've just managed to invent these things themselves. Though I do think they have the intellectual capacity to write a few checks and make a few phone calls to where this is happening elsewhere. Um, I think that we have to be particularly vigilant. I think, in fact, uh, the, the situation in Ukraine um, and the amount of disinformation that has been pumped out is so obvious that I think, in fact, that particular conflict is doing our democracy here in Australia some favours because I think people are particularly aware about disinformation and less likely to trust what they see on the internet, which is unsourced. Um, the fact that that's had to come about through a catastrophe elsewhere is kind of terrifying and speaks to how well-organised internet-based disinformation campaigning is. And it is absolutely in the interest of various bad faith actors in Australian politics, and I think we can probably all name them, um, to pursue that. Because if you, can't, if you can't win on your record and if you can't win on material reality, rumours, defamation, libel, slander and outright lies are your arsenal and the internet facilitates that very quickly, especially around crucial demographic voting groups, which you can, of course, target through Facebook advertising if you have the deep pockets to pay for it. Do feminists have a responsibility to campaign against misogyny? Well, well yes, like that's what we do. But more broadly, in my broader point about democracy, and democracy is about participating in it, what do women think happens in non-democratic countries? Can anybody name me a non-democratic country where women have anything even approaching a conversation around equality? And we can look at what happens to feminists in places like the Russian Federation, um, and you can look at if we think we have a lack of representation here and that you know representation representation is skewed and quotas are necessary they're not having conversations about quotas in non-democratic countries because they fundamentally don't believe in equality or in fact that women are of equal humanity so uh, again democracy is a use it or lose it proposition for all women and fighting for democratic rights for the triumph of truth, for the campaign against disinformation, it's it's not just it, like a, it's not just a a feminist practice. It should be a sacred feminist responsibility. That brings us to the end of our conversation tonight. Uh, before, I'm gonna hand back to you, Colin, for a, fi a final couple of words, Emma. No, okay. So in closing tonight, I just wanted to uh, uh, make two uh, comments of thanks. Uh, the first is to the ANU security team who very uh, calmly, professionally, uh, and politely managed tonight's event, uh, particularly... <laughs> In light of events of uh, recent weeks here in Canberra and our friends camped at Epic, uh, it wasn't a fait accompli that tonight was going to run smoothly, so I'm very grateful to the ANU team for making that happen. 
Uh, and secondly to Van, you've heard pretty directly about some of the stuff that Van has been subjected to, both online and in the physical world. Uh, it takes guts, bravery and a real passion for the issues of social justice that she writes about for her to be here tonight. And I just wanted in closing for all of us to, to acknowledge uh, what an extraordinary human being we've got here. Uh, go out, buy the book. Thanks for joining the conversation. And I, I obviously want to thank all of you for hosting me. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you all for being here. This is, as a person who's been trapped in their house for two years, observing <laughs> neo-fascists and their, their brown shirts without borders, um, you can imagine it's, it's really quite affirming. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge Andrew, who gave one of the best, most impassioned speeches in the parliament in its last session, calling out these people and the appalling anti-democratic agenda they serve. You are so lucky to be represented by one of the most empathetic and intelligent politicians in the country. And I want to acknowledge Andrew for that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you like this conversation with Van Badham, I reckon you might also like past discussions with Kate McGregor, Kate McClymont and Ginger Gorman. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to tell, tell your friends about it, either on your favourite social media app or better yet, face to face. It really helps others find the show. Next week, We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.